Welcome, everyone, to the 65th Fireside Chat. I hope you're all doing well around the world. We have a good representation here from people from all around the world today, right in our Fireside Chat. Let's get started, shall we? We have a couple of new people. Uh, Mario is coming to us from Rome. I think, Mario, if you're ready, we will let you go ahead first with your question. I had this pet dog uh, which died about four weeks ago, and uh, it was a rather mysterious death and sudden. And uh, she was diagnosed at first to have a back problem and then a stomach infection, and then suddenly there was this death. And they said it was uh, some kind of viral thing. Anyway, it was a surprise. I took her home and I had to take her to be cremated. But I was very upset and in a kind of shock about this. Kind of angry too, I think. And I didn't want her to go away. Uh, so I kind of asked her to stay with me for a bit before I took her to be cremated. And then I, I did that. And uh, with a friend, we scattered her ashes in a place. Um, and I kept obsessing about what, where she was, what was happening to her. And I would speak to people, uh, for example, my ex-wife, who's Vietnamese and comes from a Buddhist culture, and she said, well, she's now going to reincarnate as a human because she had a good life and did a lot of good. Another person said to me, uh, I think she's probably there around you. Uh, and, you know, I just kept thinking about this, but I didn't know what to think of it. Uh, if I listen to um, Jürgen Zewen, he speaks of people that going to an astral plane and living on there, and, and they're near us, they can see us, we can visit them. So I really wanted to find some answers to this for myself and uh, I thought perhaps something might come to me in a dream but I didn't get anything, not that I know of. Uh, so I guess that's what I want to ask you is if you can say what you think happened to her. Well, dogs are conscious uh, beings just like humans our conscious beings, and we're all here for the same purpose, that is to evolve the quality of our consciousness by making good choices. So in that sense, consciousness is consciousness. It's here for the same purpose, and basically it's progressing more or less the same way. Okay, so your your pets or even some, you know, you know, the cat next door, you know, the bumblebees, they're all making choices and evolving the quality of their consciousness. Now, their capacity for choice, their decision space is much smaller than ours. So they have different kind of challenges and, and, and different places they can go. Now, it's possible that a dog or a monkey or a horse or something that uh, is quite evolved could reincarnate as a human. That's not impossible, but it doesn't happen a lot. That's not where most of the new IUOCs come from. They don't 
typically bubble up out of the animal, you know, the other animals other than human animal. But it is possible and it does happen. And as they grow up and get to the point where they need a bigger decision space to challenge them, then they can incarnate as human. Entirely possible. But we're talking about possibilities here, not uh, things that have to happen or always happen. So in general, your pet is going to have an opportunity to have another experience packet okay, or another incarnation in Buddhist terms. And it will do that wherever that is most efficient for it to learn for where it is. If that means uh, as, as a dog again or as something else or as human or a cat or a water buffalo, I don't know, you know, it's but it. It's in the process of evolving, and it's consciousness, and it can use any number of avatars that would be, you know, that would give it a broad experience and uh, opportunities to grow. So it's not a lot different than us. It's a it's a little different in the way it's implemented because of the the lesser decision space, but in the bigger picture, consciousness all evolves from all the conscious beings here on this planet or those that have never been on this planet, you know, the animals, the, uh, well, you know, I say animals, a human is an animal. We're just one of the, one of the animals that are on, uh, that are on the planet. So I, I don't know if that answers your question. Uh, if you want to be very, very specific about your dog, that would take a little bit more, more trouble to go into following that line of, but mostly it's it's just it's okay it's doing fine it's going to have more opportunities to make choices and and grow up and if indeed it was a very highly evolved creature and not self focused then it may decide it wanted to be human i've even known cases where uh, an entity had been evolving as human and just because of the timing they really wanted to be with a person but they didn't want, you know, they were non-physical at the time, but they didn't want to come back as a baby because then they wouldn't have a, an opportunity to interact with that person because by the time they, you know, there'd be a 20-year difference between them or something. It wouldn't be likely that they'd interact or 30-year difference between them. So that person who had been incarnating as human beings decided to incarnate as a dog to be with that person because a dog's life is very short. Uh, it doesn't last real long, you know, what, 12 years, 15 years, depends on the breed, sometimes less, sometimes only six or seven. And it gave them an opportunity to spend time with that person. So they took a, a, a less challenging uh, incarnation just to hang out for a decade, just to be with that person, because that's what they wanted to do. So you have free will to make your choices of what it is that you that you want to do so it really can flow both ways but all of that is exceptional rather than typical the strange thing about her death was um, she had this hacking cough for about a week and then she has this viral infection and uh, I'm not saying she had coronavirus but it's as if she died of something like the similar you know and uh, then I was watching some uh, a young woman on the TV talking about her mother who did die of coronavirus. And this young woman was very upset. 
and she couldn't believe it. And she was saying how loving her mother was. Um, and um, she was young. I mean, she was in her 50s. And, you know, she couldn't comprehend it. And when I was listening to her, I knew exactly how she felt. And then I thought, wow, a lot of people are experiencing this right now. And it's very hard to comprehend why it happens. It's, death happens. But sometimes you feel that it's very unfair or somehow quite punishing. And um, if you think about it in terms of your theory and that we receive challenges, you could ask yourself, what is the good in this challenge? Uh, uh, someone you're getting on with, someone you're doing well with. <coughs> you know, and how do you not be upset by it? Because you feel loss. You can't be okay with it. Okay. Um, everything that happens to you in life, all of the life experience that comes your way, including death of loved ones, including, you know, pets and people and relatives and significant others and children and all of that. Though it is sometimes traumatic and always difficult, it's something that you should learn from. It is something that gives you choices and you should grow and evolve and take advantage of those growing opportunities whenever anything happens in your experience. And the more powerful the experience, the more significant the experience, the more the opportunity for growth on your part. So you should see all experience as opportunities for growth and difficult and major experiences as particular opportunities for growth. And how do you approach it? How do you deal with it? You know, what is what are your choices and how do you make them? And hopefully you make them very well and you know you'll you'll learn from that. So what might you learn from you know your, your dog's passing? Well, um, you would probably go back over your association with that with that animal and the things that you meant to each other and feel that, be grateful for it appreciate it, revisit it, but not in a sense of negativity. Oh, no, this is not the way I want it. I want it to be where they're around. I don't want them to be gone, you see. Now you're de-evolving into, into self-pity and oh, no, and ego, and then that's not good. But if you think about them and say, what a treasure it was to have spent, you know, six years with that critter and what good times we had and, and what wonderful things we gave to each other. And if you think about it very positively, then you draw strength and, and joy from it rather than, than uh, upset or sadness or anger or that sort of thing from it. So if you make the right choices, then you can find that you can get some learning, some good valuable learning because you have these choices from almost anything, but powerful experiences have even more powerful learning opportunities that you have. So it depends on how you approach it. If you approach it from a negative attitude, that's basically based on your ego and, and your needs and your wants, and it's not fair and that sort of thing, 
then that's not doing well with your opportunity. If you, if you approach it from a very positive viewpoint, then you grow up. You kind of rise above the other possibilities. And then that is very good. So learn from everything. Everything that happens in our, in our, in our, uh, reality, everything that is a particularly emotional impact on us is a great opportunity to grow up, stay positive, stay joyful, you know, stay connected. Don't, uh, feel sorry for yourself or don't be upset because life isn't the way you want it to be. Accept life, you know, with, with grace. Accept uncertainty, you know, with grace and make life a positive, a stream of positive things. Death happens. It usually happens because of some sort of rule set, you know, an illness of some kind or, a, you know, a, a physics problem like you get run over by a truck. You know, there are, there, it happens for reasons of the rule set and it does. So death is a part of life. It's a part of our being here. Every being here that's alive is going to die. And that is the way it is. And when you die, you will leave others behind that are not dead that will have to deal with your passing. And then they have opportunities to grow up from how they deal with that. So, yes, it's sad. And yes, it's good to express that sadness. There's no, there's no penalty in being sad because you know, a sad things happen. That's fine. You just don't want to get, you know, to where the sadness is what dominates you. Feel the sadness. There's nothing wrong with, with, uh, with grief. You can feel the grief, but then you focus on what's positive. You focus on the good things and on the joy. You don't focus on the grief. It's just an emotion that we have when something really sad happens and then you kind of accept it and, and uh, learn from it. And then, like I say, you go back and you visit. You may go interact with those memories and interact with even within consciousness with your, you know, with that relationship, uh, you know, over the next 10 or 12 years, maybe the rest of your life, there'll be an interaction there. You don't have to just let it go entirely. There's consciousness there. There's data in the database. There's your consciousness. There's the, there's the larger consciousness system. And you can make as much or little of that interaction as you wish. And as it's helpful for your growth, then you can make more of it. As it's not, you know, you can leave it alone. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mario. Next, I'm going to read a question from Alex. This is a question on teenage depression. Now you know that Tom will answer this from his consciousness viewpoint and not from any kind of uh, medical uh, standpoint that requires a professional in that field. My question is about depression in young people. A happy child until 13, when all the bodily changes started and depression signs started appearing, now at 16, it has not gotten better, mood swings, feeling bad in general without a cause, and not about anything in particular. Disinterest in doing anything that used to be fun, plus gender dysphoria that seems to be a widespread phenomenon these days. 
There used to be conversations about hormone therapy, which were not supported by the parents. A very intelligent and creative young adult, above the age otherwise, and doing well at school. The conversations now shifted to maybe seeing a psychiatrist to get a drug prescription for depression. Parents struggle to assess to what extent such prescriptions and any conditioning by a psychiatrist would do is harm rather than good. Whether all that is needed is just giving it more time to grow up. Though, Tom, from the standpoint of the brain being virtual, what would you say? If I'm not mistaken, you did say in the past about drugs needed in certain cases of deficiencies in brain chemistry, but it just doesn't feel right in this case. Can you comment on that, Tom? Sure. The issue about drugs, whether you should take a drug for an illness or not, just depends on the individual and the circumstances. <clears throat> you can't make a, a blanket or I can't give a blanket answer to questions like that. It depends on the individuals. Drugs tend to, you know, modify symptoms. Many of our drugs are not really focused on causes. They're, they're focused on symptoms. If you have a really bad headache, you take a pill and that pill will deaden your pain transmitters or pain receivers. It doesn't fix the problem that's causing the headache, but it makes you not feel the pain. Okay, that's what I mean by we're treating symptoms here. Now, all medicine doesn't treat symptoms. Sometimes it treats causes, but for the most part, we seem to be treating symptoms with our, with our medicine. So, with depression, it's often very difficult to tell, you know, what came first the depression as a as a biochemical change you know did the biochemical change happen first and then the depression followed that or did the depression start first and then the biochemical change was the body changing to more accurately suit you know the depression that was part of consciousness you know we or i guess we would generally in our culture say psychological. You know, so psychological things can change the body. The body will uh, adapt to the consciousness. And sometimes biology just changes because it does, because there's so many variables in biology that uh, it even appears to us to be random, though it's, it's not really random. There's just so many variables that it appears to us that way. All right, so what do you do? I'd say best thing for you is to let go of all your beliefs about things that, that uh, you should or shouldn't do and focus on what works. Okay. I think that is important, particularly for the case of a, of a teenager. Um, focus on what works. If you've kind of run up against a, a brick wall as far as, you know, your conversations and talking and what's wrong and can you, can you tell me why you'll feel that way? Well, a lot of times people who are depressed can't really pinpoint it to a particular thing or 
mostly it's fear-based and they really don't want to talk about those fears anyway. So they all tell you, no, I don't really have any good reasons because they really don't want to talk about the real reasons. Intellectually, they're not sure why. They just have these feelings and they don't relate to them at fundamental enough level to tell exactly why they feel the way they do. So teenagers are uh, a little higher risk group because they do not have the maturity to see things in bigger pictures. They tend to see things in terms of little pictures. And when you see things in terms of little pictures, it's much easier to fall into this uh, depressed state where there's there's everything that's not right and all the stuff that's wrong, and that seems to be overwhelming and overpowering. It it's It becomes almost everything there is. And the things that are good and right and beautiful and lovely, they kind of recede into the margins and you hardly even notice that they're there. But the ugly stuff and the stuff that's unhappy begins to fill up your life and fill up your mind space to where that's all you see. And that's easy for a child to get into that. It's easy for a child to do that because they don't have that experience that broad experience, life experience of, you know, 30 or 40 years to give them a more balanced look. So getting out of balance is easier for young people than it is for older people because the environment seems to be harsh or seems to be unfriendly or seems to be scary or non-supportive. That can fill up a young person's whole world. You know, even a you know, a girlfriend or boyfriend, you know, breaking up, you know, can, can dominate a young person's whole world to where there doesn't seem to be anything left in the world other than that relationship and its failure and so on. So you have to be particularly careful with young people because they are very vulnerable uh, just by the fact that they're young. So focus on what works. Um, if you're going to a physician and they're suggesting medication, Read up about the medication. Go to the internet. Read all the pros. Read all the cons. Talk to other people that you know that have used it. Uh, get some opinion. In other words, make yourself smart on that particular medication. There's hundreds of different kinds of medications, and some, you know, some people have tremendous uh, positive benefits from some, and some people have terrible, uh, you know, negative reactions. You know, to others. And exactly what your child will find is an unknown yet. But it's possible that that, 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 uh, medicine may actually help relieve the symptom long enough to let your child grow up and get a little bigger perspective. So it's not going to fix the problem. Drugs don't fix problems. And if you're just looking for a fix, then drugs aren't going to do that. But they can make the symptoms much less with the the downside or the side effects being not so bad or tolerable that it buys time for that young person to grow up some. So they kind of grow past their 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 uh, tunnel vision into the dystopia they see themselves living in. All right, so in that case, the medicine can be very helpful. 
and not just children, but that's in general. You know, it can help you get past a rough patch and see things better later on. So don't discount it just because it's, it, it is only symptomatic. If you don't need the medicine, if you can get through this problem and find light at the end of the tunnel, find happiness, find some positive attitudes with this child without the medicine, well, that's, of course, even better. But sometimes you can't. So it just depends on the individual. Now, how should you go about that? You should try to find something in this person's life, something that is positive. Whatever it is, if it has to do with a pet, if it has to do with a you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, if it has to do with the fact that they love to go camping or they love to go hiking or they love to play video games or they love to do whatever it is they do. If it's positive and they feel good about doing it and it's one of those things that when they do that, they tend to smile, well, do more of that. Join them. Even if what they really want to do, a boy and a teenager, what he really wants to do is probably play video games because that's what boy teenagers tend to tend to do these days. If that's the case, go play video games with him. Get on his team. Let him teach you how. You see, you don't have to be, well, he's either alone in his room doing them or there's nothing I can do there. There is things you can do there. Get involved in it. Try to get into his world and become a part of it, whatever that takes, whatever his interest is. You know, find things that he cares about. Maybe he just cares about reading. Well, if he does, then read the same books he reads and discuss them. You see what I mean? Insert yourself into his life. Connect with him in ways, even if they're not things you normally would do. You normally might not read those books, or you may not normally play video games, but you need to get to the point where you're part of his life. As long as he's walled off and you're on the outside of that wall, it makes it very hard for you to help him. If you're going to help him, you need to get inside that wall, which means you have to go to his space and do the things that he likes doing or that makes him smile or even that just he finds entertaining, whatever that is, hiking, camping. You know, bowling, pinball machines, arcades. These are the things that young boys like to do. Um, get him involved in something uh, else young boys like to do, like uh, enroll him in a karate class, and you go to class with him. Join the class. Don't just send him off. You need to get involved. And not involved as a teacher or a lecturer or somebody that's, that's picking at him, uh, you know, and obviously you're there just to manipulate him into not being so depressed. That's not going to help so much. Then you're not really being there with him. You're just a more clever manipulator. Oh, I see. You're going to act like, you know, you really, you know, want to hang out with me or want to do things I do or want, you know, want to interact, but it's just a manipulation. That won't work. You have to really do it. Get connected. Live in his space a little bit. So those are the things that I would suggest you try first. And if that doesn't work, then getting a 
you know, there, there's all sorts of drugs that, that are working for against depression. Uh, the, the serotonin rehape, the serotonin retake uptake inhibitors. I think it is. What is that? The serotonin uptake inhibitor. There's an R in there. SR serotonin reuptake inhibitor. What it does is it, it stops the body from, from uh, destroying the serotonin. Serotonin is a, is a, is a, uh, what's called neurotransmitter. It has to do with your, your, uh, system of balances. And there's something that makes the serotonin and there's something then that destroys the serotonin in order to keep it in balance. So if you've got too much, then that part of you that creates the stuff that, that gets rid of it gets stronger. And if you've got too little, you're supposed to make more, but, those drugs tend to have pretty mild side effects and sometimes work. And then there's other drugs like lithium drugs and other things that are much more heavy duty with much more dramatic side effects and difficulties. So it's not like taking drugs and not taking drugs is just, you know, a zero or one choice. If you decide that some pharmaceuticals might help, well, start out with as light a touch as possible with things that have good reputations and have very few side effects. If you're, if you finally get pushed into the, into the pharmaceutical end because the other things don't work and just slowly go from the light touch to heavier touches as you feel you need to, but be very careful if you do those that you watch for side effects because the side effects can be worse than the problem. So that's not a good reason to not look at them at all, but it's a good reason to go that route very carefully. So that's about all you can do. Your child has to make his own choices. You can't go in and make choices for him. All you can do is give him an environment in which happy choices are easier to find for him. Be with him. Join him. Connect with him. Live live his life a little bit. Don't have you're over here and he's over there. You know, you're out in the living room watching TV and he's in his room playing video games and he's depressed and he doesn't want to come out and be with you. Well, then go in and be with him. But don't be with him as a bother and don't be with him as a lecturer or telling him why what he's doing is wrong and not helpful or telling him what it is he needs to do. All of that's counterproductive. If, you know, just connect to him, experience his reality for a while and do it honestly, not because you're manipulating him. Get to know him. Talk with him, but don't judge him. He will probably not trust you in the beginning. He'll think you're judging him and he'll think you're, you're, you're doing, you're manipulating him, but give it time. Over a couple of months, if he realizes you're really sincere in uh, getting closer to him and 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 uh, seeing his perspective and talking to him about it, and if he says something that you think is silly, oh, that's part of why he's depressed because of such and such. Well, I'll just tell him why that's wrong. <laughs> Suppress yourself. Don't be telling him why that's wrong. Just talk to him about it without being judgmental. See, that you think it's wrong is being judgmental. Don't go there. Just explore his world with him, not you tell him what's right or wrong or the way he should respond to things or where his problem is. 
And that's a difficult thing for a lot of parents not to do that. They think they can fix the child's mistake by just pointing out, you know, the error in their thinking. And it doesn't work like that, particularly for teenagers. That'll backfire and make everything worse, probably. All right. Thank you, Tom. That was helpful. Appreciate that. Thank you. Tom, would that um, advice apply to a teenage girl as well? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. That applies. Actually, that applies to everybody, not just teenagers. Teenagers just happen to be more vulnerable to depression because of their hormones are kind of out of balance. Uh, they're, they're changing. They're going from children to adults. They don't quite know how to do that. They're searching for an identity and their place in the world. I mean, teenagers have a lot going on that makes them more vulnerable to things like that. But the advice I just gave is good for anyone at any age. But remember, don't be judgmental. And most of the reasons that children don't want to talk to their parents is because the parents will be judgmental. The parents will immediately tell them on what's wrong with their thinking and why they're not looking at it right and why, how they need to straighten up and, you know, what they have to do next and how they should change their attitude. And the parents are constantly trying to fix them. And by the time they're teenagers, they have to fix themselves. And if you can be part of that solution for them, which is mean just there, sometimes just there, just, you know, holding a hand or just being there and not being judgmental, but, but being with them and how they are and how they're feeling, not judging it, just being there with it. That'll make all the difference in the world. Maybe then they'll start talking to you and, and, uh, they'll, they will trust you then not to just tell them what to do and be the parent that knows best. Then you become somebody who's actually very helpful to them because you do have a whole lot more experience than they do. But you have to let them see that, not tell them that. And it has to be an organic, natural connection. But yes, you can do the, you should do exactly the same thing with, with, uh, girls. And with your uncles and aunts and your, your parents and, you know, everybody else with the people at work. Basically, it's the same idea works everywhere. You know, be with people, join them, be connected to them, not just the outsider who tells them how they should live their life. Thanks, Tom. Uh, we have a couple of questions from TD. Go ahead, please. Thank you. Hi, Tom. Good to see Hi, you. Hi, TD. Yeah, good seeing you again. Hmm. Yes. Um, well, we can maybe sort of continue on the same topic because I have a question from a teenager and uh, I would like to read it to you. Um, if you want to change who you are at the core, you need to have a strong and fine-tuned intention that covers all the aspects of that. Changing who you are, changing your interpretation of data, and changing your beliefs. It can be a bit hard to keep focus if the intention includes too many things. So, how can the intention be formulated so that it, it is simple, effective, and covers all aspects of changing who you are at the core? 
Okay. What you described, something that uh, has to cover all the aspects of you and changing, that, of course, is what you're you're aiming for, but that's generally not where you start. It would be too hard and too complicated to start there. You have to start from wherever you are. In other words, you may not be able to get your arms around all the issues and all the connections and all the things you really need to deal with. You may not even know what they all are in the beginning. So you just deal with the things that are closest to you, in front of you, that you know are problems. Just deal with those. And as other problems pop up, you might say, oh, okay, now there's another thing I need I need to deal with. All right. Now, if you can deal with both of those at the same time, fine, do that. But if you find that's just difficult, it's hard, it's overwhelming, well, then just go back to the one and say, well, I'll deal with that second one later. Right now, I just need to deal with this one. So you don't have to do all of them all the time from the beginning. You can do just whatever is seen most important to you at the time. Do that. And if once you get that one done, then maybe you can work on the next one. And after you get that one done, work on the next one. So you can work them off piecemeal unless they are so intertwined that to work on one, you know, actually connects to another one. And you have to kind of work those together. Well, then work those together. And sometimes it's not advisable even to work on the hardest problem. If you say, okay, here's a problem, but that one's really, really deep. And that's going to be a tough one. So there's this other problem besides that that's not quite so deep and not quite so hard. I'll work on that one first. <laughs> you see, work on, do what you can do. Do the best you can with what you can do. And then expand your your focus to take more and expand to take more. And those things will change. As you go through this process, you will find that the things you need to work on will change. Some things that you thought were trivial, oh, well, that's just a little problem, but that's not really that important. And you'll find out later that that's really the key thing, but you didn't realize it then. So expect those kinds of things to happen as well. So obviously, this is not something that's going to happen quickly. You can't just grab this monster and wrestle it to the ground in an afternoon. It's going to be something that's a life's work. Start out with the idea that I'm going to work on it until I succeed. And I'll work on it the best I can. If I start feeling overwhelmed, I'll back off and work on it a little less or work on other things. Or I'll take a little break because you don't want to push yourself into being overwhelmed. Because when you get overwhelmed, then you have a tendency to throw your arms up in the air and say, oh, I give up. That's not good. So you just keep working on it slowly, bit by bit, making it more and more inclusive of the things you need to work on as you go. So don't have the idea I'm going to cure myself and fix everything quickly. I'm just going to fix this part for now. And when I get that part fixed, I'm going to go start on another part and so on until I get it done. But if you have this commitment that I am going 
to change myself. And I am going to get rid of this, you know, this, these parts of me. And I'm going to work on it until I'm done, until I've got it all. And you don't set expecta expectations so high that you get frustrated. You don't set them so low that not much happens. You find that sweet spot in the middle and just keep plugging away at it. And as the years go by, and yes, it might take years, but as the years go by, you will succeed. You just have to have that intent that I am going to do this. I am going to change myself in these ways. And if that takes two or three years, well, let it take two or three years. Don't be frustrated. So just do the best you can with what you have. Don't push yourself to the point of exhaustion or frustration, but keep plugging away and keep looking at the little changes that you make. Even if it's just a little change. All right. I got that this was a 90% problem and now it's only a 80% problem. Yay for me. That's good. I'm moving in the right direction. Look at the little advantages. Don't say, ah, oh, it was a 90% problem. And geez, it's still an 80% pro you know, problem. I'm not doing very well. That's the negative look. You know, find all the little successes and, and look at those and learn. How did that work? How, why did that, why was that part of success? And if you do that, then it will make it easier for you to focus more effectively. There's just a long, slow process, and you don't have to do it all at the same time. Be kind to yourself. Look at the positive aspects. Focus on the positive, not on the negative. If you keep looking at the negative, you can be overwhelmed by the size of the problem. But look at the details, the positive things that are going on. Just the fact that you're working on it is a positive thing all in itself. That's a big step. The first step is usually the biggest one to take. But I will tell you that after you've taken a step or two, it gets easier and easier. So it's not like being in the salt mine, you know, for the next decade. It's like working really hard and struggling. And eventually those, it'll get easier and easier to where you can drop off these problems pretty quickly. But it may take you a year or two to get there. So patience. And focus on the positive. Mm, thank you. Uh, I think that you sort of got caught in um, because we had this discussion before. If you, because I, I think that his before uh, his previous strategy was to work on behaviors, um, and he sort of worked with himself intellectually, which is very common. But then he got the advice to work at the core in his being and mm. changing how he interprets data and, and to do that sort of in yeah. At yeah, the working at the yeah, working at the being level, not the intellectual yeah. level. Yeah, the intellectual level is not very effective. No. So he's been trying that now and and but he still thinks it's it's a little bit yeah, like I said, mm, sort of it's hard to to see what is the scope of this but you so you, you explained a bit about it now so maybe that helps yeah just break off a small piece of it and work mm -hmm. on and work on that not has to do it all together and you 
should give him lots of encouragement. As you see him doing things a little differently, as you see him smiling more often, as you see him not, you know, as negative or not as fearful, comment on it. Give him a, give him a hug, you know, give him a couple of gold stars for the day, you know, give him lots of encouragement that you see the difference. Mm. And, uh, that will help. That will help as well. And give him lots of consolation when it doesn't work out. And he says, Oh, I've been working on that, but there, look, I just did it again. You know, I don't seem to be getting it. And then you just need to say, well, you just keep, just keep working at it. Don't, don't set, you know, don't set expectations for yourself. Just work on it and keep mm-hmm. working on it. And he's doing it right now. He's not doing it intellectually. He's doing it at the being level. Have patience. Be positive. Mm-hmm. Don't be negative about yourself. That's the worst thing. Mm-hmm. Don't say, oh, I'm a failure. I can't do this right. That's the thing to be avoided. Mm-hmm. But, but I mean, that could be sort of, because I've been trying this uh, strategy myself lately, that sort of more think about I want to change who I am instead mm-hmm. of working on a lot of things uh, all over the place. So, so I've been focusing on that, and I think that's sort of a more simple strategy to apply mm-hmm. than to work, you know, to grasp the whole thing. Right. <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a monster. <laughs> yeah, and it's better. It's a better strategy than trying to work on behavior. You know, I want to behave differently. Generally, is a long, drug-out process that doesn't work very well. Mm-hmm. You have to say, I really want to change myself. Not just behave better, but I want to be different such that the behavior just goes away on its own. Yeah, I think that's helpful. So, yeah, I'll continue with that myself, too. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I do have another question, if that's okay. Donna's shaking her head. That means go ahead. Okay, I go ahead. So this one is about forgiveness. Um, and also about tangled relationships. Uh, so um, let's say that you have hurt someone or that someone got mad at you for some reason. The natural thing to do is to talk to, to the person with the intention of clearing things out. But sometimes that doesn't work or the person doesn't want to talk. So... Would you like to share some practical advice on how to work on relationships or forgiveness in a non-physical way, if you think that would be helpful in situations like this? Okay. Well, first off, you should make sure that if you are trying it in a physical way, that you're you're always approaching it from the non-judgmental side. You know, you're not explaining yourself and saying, well, here's why I wasn't really wrong. And here's why what I was saying really shouldn't have hurt you. You see, you're basically then saying, I'm, I'm right and you were wrong to feel hurt. And that doesn't help. That just gets in the way. So first, make sure that you're, you're, uh, when you, when you're approaching it in the physical, you really approach it from a point, from a position of listening rather from a position of explaining. If you're trying to explain yourself, then other people maybe aren't too interested, particularly if you've hurt them. They don't want 
to know why or they don't care why. That's not significant to them. It's just that it hurt whatever you did, and that's what's important. And they don't want to hear you explain yourself why what you did really was the right thing to do anyway. You see, that just throws gasoline on the fire. So first, in the physical, approach as listening. Make your apology or whatever it is, and then just listen. And don't try, don't get to the point where you're defensive. Oh, but the reason I did that was because if you're trying to defend yourself, then that's just your ego. And when your ego is involved, it's going to make everything worse. Just listen and try to understand their viewpoint. All right. But if that is impossible because they won't even chat with you, they won't even, uh, you know, they won't read your email even, you know, they're just, they're non-communicative. Then you can work non-physically with your intent. When you get into a meditation state to where you've let go of the physical world, then just bring that person up with an intention to connect with that person. You have that intention and you connect with them, you will feel uh, kind of their presence. And if you don't feel it, it doesn't matter. Just go ahead. Just, just go through the process because otherwise your ego is going to be asking questions. Oh, did I feel that? Or did I just make up that I felt that? You know, and then your, your intellect will get off on a, on its own thing. It'll ruin the whole process. So just go through the process. Have an intention. Intention is to make a connection and then have that conversation. But the same conversation that I just talked about, don't try to defend yourself. Don't try to explain to them why what you said really wasn't so bad, why they shouldn't have been so upset about it in the first place. All of that is your ego, trying to make them see it the way you want them to see it. Well, if you come in trying to manipulate them to see things the way you want it, it will just make everything worse. But if you come to that connection non-physically and you give them love, you give them caring, you give them an apology, you, uh, you know, you help feel their feelings. You get a sense of where they're coming from. Why did they get hurt? What were they thinking? And as soon as they say something, uh, don't start defending yourself. Oh, I didn't mean it that way. Just listen. And then after you've listened and you kind of feel where they're coming from and why they're feeling that way, you can interact with them, have conversation, but it always has to be from a non-ego viewpoint. It has to be about them. You know, oh, I'm, you know, I'm so sorry that I made you feel so bad. And then you have this kind of commiseration with them that you know what it is to feel bad and you know how awful that makes you feel. And you can let them feel your feeling of being sorry, not just saying words. Words are cheap. Anybody can say I'm sorry just because that takes the pressure off, you know, and that's what we do. You know, it's an intellectual approach. We take the pressure off the the volatile situation by apologizing, but that's not the same thing as actually being sorry. It's just saying that you are. So you can communicate the being sorry to them while you're in this non-physical connection. And you can then say things to them from a loving and caring viewpoint. Not from a here's the way I'd like you to see it, but 
just a loving and caring viewpoint. And if you do that, they will get the message and they will accept it. And it will make a huge difference. And you will find that later when you interact with them, they will have changed their attitude towards you. So you just need to be careful that you don't use that non-physical uh, connection, that intuitive connection, to manipulate them. And by that, I mean to, to impress your viewpoint and your judgments onto them. So it's not so much that you are going to fix something as it is you're going to really commune with that other person, feel their feelings, understand where they're coming from, and just give them some warm feelings about it. Give them some support without any strings attached. Mm. That's the key. Of course, in order to do that, you have to not be full of fear and ego. If you're full of fear and ego, that's what's going to come across. So you got to get rid of that fear and ego so that you can come across just and be very supportive. Even if the situation is such that, you know, if we looked at it, if we went before a judge and jury, the judge and jury may say, oh, well, you were right. You should have said what you said. And yes, they deserved that. It doesn't matter whether that's what the judge and jury would say. What matters is that you connect with them on a person to person and you heal that relationship. I assume that's why you want to talk to them in the first place is you want to heal that relationship. You want to connect with them in a more positive way. That's the whole point of it in the first place. So it's not about being right. See? Whether you're being right, whether you're right or wrong is an intellectual process. It's, it's the feeling that people have with each other. I had a, a friend of mine come to me and he had a, he had a new, uh, he just had gone through a divorce. He had a new girlfriend. And he and his girlfriend were having issues and he was, he had his back up because he knew he was right. And my advice to him is that he could, he had uh, two choices here. Would he rather be right or would he rather have a good relationship with this woman? I said, y you can't have both. Which one's more important to you? And when he thought of it in that sense, he realized that him, you know, carrying on this argument on and on and on because he knew he was right was counterproductive to him having a good relationship with this person. So then he realized that he didn't have to be right. Being right, him being right, needing to be right was a big part of the problem. So it doesn't matter whether you were right or wrong in the thing that caused the upset in the first place. That's irrelevant is what I'm saying. You have to decide if what you want is a better relationship here, then the rightness and wrongness is judgmental. Let that go and just interact with the person in a caring, loving way. That's kind of your optimal thing to do. Now, they have to, they'll get that, but what they do with it is up to them. What they do with it is up to them, but I wouldn't do that just one time. I'd make that a connection that you do at least two or three times a week over several weeks. Because sometimes when you connect with people like that, 
you'll actually find that that they are maybe even more angry with you rather than less. But that's really because they're not angry with you. Actually, they become more angry with themselves because they're beginning to see your point and they're beginning to see you as a caring, supportive person rather than that evil person they thought you were. And when they see you in that light, now they get angry with themselves and they may express that as anger that comes out to you. So that's why you got to give it some weeks. Keep working on it for a while and let it sink in and let all the internal changes take place uh, before you really judge the results. That's very helpful. Yeah. And you know, you can do that with your, with, you can do that with your child as well. You should connect with your children non-physically like that and just give them that love, those hugs, that caring, that, you know, you're there for them. You're the safety net and that you'll always be there for them no matter what they do or say. And you can give them all of that, that in a non-physical sense. Even if you tried to do that in a physical sense, they may kind of push you away, but you can do that non-physically as long as what you're doing is, is giving something to them you are being loving and caring to them you're not trying to forward your own agenda then they will make that'll make them feel stronger and make them feel more open so that that's using this intention you know working through the non-physical is an extremely powerful way to approach people that otherwise are hard to approach um it brings up uh, another thing. Well, when, uh, because when, if you really screw up in life and do something really bad, when, is there <laughs> any meaning in, uh, in addressing an apology to LCS? <laughs> or sometimes you just feel like I had, this happened to me a few months ago and I really wanted to. Oh, I wish, how, how can I be forgiven for this? It was a big mistake and I just wanted to say I'm yeah, sorry. Sure. Sure you can. You can, you can apologize to the LCS. What, you know, getting to the point that you realize that an apology, you know, is, you know, is something that you want to do. That's the first big step. You know, getting to the point that you realize that you messed up, that you didn't do it very well. That's the first step. So when you apologize to anybody, what you're doing is showing them that you've gotten to the at least the first step of solving the problem is you realize it is a problem, that, that what you did and your attitude or whatever was a problem. And, yes, the system, if you say that to the system, it will say, oh, okay, this lady's ready to grow and take the next step. Otherwise, if you're just sitting there still angry because somehow the world didn't work the way it would, it should have in your mind, then there's no need to start to worry about what your next step is because you haven't taken the first step yet. So sure, the apologies, whether it's to the LCS or whether it's to other people, is always a good thing, a good place to start once you realize that you've done something poorly. You've made poor choices. Mm, yeah, until, until you realize that you've made poor choices, there's no way that you'll ever correct them. <laughs> 